Welcome to Don't Retire, Graduate, the podcast that teaches you how to advance into retirement rather than retreating. I'm your host and valedictorian, Eric Brotman, and today we have a guest, Derek Hagen, who is a financial therapist and the founder of Money Health Solutions, a financial therapy and coaching firm based outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota, services clients nationwide, and he holds professional designations, including the Certified Financial Therapist and Certified Financial Planner designations. Derek, welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. I'm happy to be here. So we, our last guest on this show uh, talked about financial fitness. So I got some free fitness advice. Today, we're going to talk about financial therapy, which, uh, quite frankly, I didn't know existed as, a, a, as an entity. So there's so much I want to unpack and learn about that. And if anyone knows me well, they know I need a lot of therapy. So this is going to be very helpful <laughs> to me personally as well. Derek, tell us about, about you, about Money Health Solutions, sort of how you got into this business. And, and let's, let's dig into what is financial therapy? How is that different than coaching, consulting, planning, and so forth? Yeah, you hit all of the terminology on the head there. So I love financial fitness. That's, you know, I named my company Money Health Solutions. So, you know, we we can think of physical fitness, physical health. We know what that means. We know about mental health. That's becoming less and less of a stigma. And so now this financial health is kind of, are you healthy with your money? So financial therapy to kind of explain what that is, I think it might be helpful to take a step back 10 years ago before this was even thought of. If you had troubles and they were related to money, because most people, their biggest source of stress is money and the biggest kind of conflict point in their relationship is money. So if you went into a financial planner's office and started crying because maybe we don't have the same values or goals or we're always fighting about money, the financial planner is not going to know how to deal with a crying client. So they're going to give you some tissues and tell you to get your act together. So you go to your therapist or psychiatrist or psychologist, and then you start asking about money. What kind of accounts should we need? Where should we take our money from? I'm retiring soon. Do I have enough? They're not going to know anything about that money. Now, I'm intentionally uh, making fun of both camps. I mean, they're not always that bad, but there was nobody 10 years ago that would kind of handle both the emotional and the practical side of money. So about 10 years ago, Financial Therapy Association was created, and it's meant to kind of tackle that overlap. The emotional side, the behavioral side, the communication side of money. So in a nutshell, that's kind of how it started. It's still pretty new. So when you said you hadn't heard of it, that doesn't surprise me because it's it's one of these fields where you hear that a lot, often followed by, I've been needing this or thinking there should be something like this for a long time. So there's definitely a need and people still have yet to know that it's kind of a thing. So, you know, we have, we have suggested, um, for our clients, we've suggested that folks reach out sometimes to a financial coach, particularly someone who can help with a, a one time or a, or a sort of more of the, uh, emotional aspects and less of the financial aspects of that. And, and that has been helpful. Um, we certainly, I, I can't tell you how many times in my office I've used the term, I, I'm not a therapist. Um, and, and that's not to suggest that, I, that I'm not empathetic. It's not to suggest that, that, um, that we haven't seen um, difficult uh, situations or, or talk people through tragic or, or, or tough circumstances. It's just to say that I'm not trained. And financial advisors in general, we have to be, um, we have to be empathetic. We have to be good with people, but we, we aren't trained 
to uh, with on, on any kind of health or medical side to be therapists and I, and I think there's a very profound difference how does um, financial therapy differ from for example the study of behavioral finance which I have heard of and have uh, spent countless hours um, reading and, and researching because I, I find that piece fascinating are they intertwined is this a Venn diagram or are they completely separate animals asking such great questions I'm happy to answer that so when you Behavioral finance is also kind of new, relatively. So when a lot of people will hear behavioral finance, they'll think this is the mixing of money and psychology. But let's take that a little bit deeper and say this is actually the mixture of money and cognitive psychology. That is, to use kind of a jargon term, cognition, this is how we all think. So this is kind of like nature. This happens to all of us. We all are susceptible to a lot of these behavioral finance biases. So we're all susceptible to framing. We're all susceptible to loss aversion. We're all susceptible to representativeness. These are just terms that come from behavioral finance. Now, if you take money and mix it with clinical psychology, now we got something called financial psychology, and that is more about nurture. That's about you. So what did you experience growing up? What did you experience in your childhood? How do you behave with money? So there's, we're just kind of splitting the psychology aspect of that into two. So does it apply to everybody or does it apply to just you? So that's where the distinction between behavioral finance and financial psychology or financial therapy comes into play. And then you brought up financial coaching and the behavioral aspect of that. There's going to be a lot of overlap with all these different terms. Even some financial advisors are using some emotional uh, and communication techniques to help their clients. But I like to distinguish between exterior finance and interior finance. So to define those, exterior finance happens outside. This is nuts and bolts. This is your spreadsheets and calculators. So if you're looking for the best strategy, if you're looking for, you know, a simulation, am I going to run out of money? You're probably using exterior finance. What's the most beneficial account? How do I save the most taxes? What's the best investment strategy? Now, all that exterior advice in the world isn't going to make any difference if you're unable or unwilling to get yourself to do it. So that's where that interior side of money comes into play. Now, financial coaching uses some of that interior finance, but they're exclusively forward-looking. So how do I help you looking forward How do we change your mindset if there's a mindset that needs to be changed? How do we change your behaviors? How do we implement new habits? For some people, there's going to be some something in the way. They're stuck. Like, I know I need to save more. I know I need to spend less. I know I need to stop enabling my child, for example. Or I know I need to start spending money, right? Because some people are averse to spending money. So that's where financial therapy comes into play. Let's try to unpack what's keeping you stuck. We know where you want to go, and there's something in your way. So we need to identify and change what's in your way. I'm fascinated, Derek. Um, I'm I'm fascinated by this. First of all, when I think of therapy, I I picture, um, you know, I picture the black couch and the and the I picture the black couch and the and the and the box of tissues, and 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 maybe that's uh, hyperbole, and I'm being silly, but but that's sort of how I picture this. So. 
you know, I, I've seen financial advisors who set their offices up deliberately to look more like a therapy office, whether it's whether it's the the chairs and sofas rather than a conference table, whether it's the you know the the decor, trying to make it a homey den type of feel rather than a corporate feel. Um, what is a financial therapist now? Of course, in the era of COVID, everything's probably virtual anyway. But but is financial therapy usually done by phone or by uh, video conference? Is it done in person? What is that? What's the mechanics? What's the setup? How's that look? Yeah, I, so I, there's a couple things that I want to unpack there. The first is I love the switch away from boardroom, conference room, into more of a living room therapy office. There's been some research done lately. Well, there's been research known for a long time that money is a big source of stress for us. And if you dig into kind of the communication aspect of money, when we become emotionally flooded, we are kind of talking and acting as if we're children. We don't have the kind of logical part of our brain connected because it takes too long. And so our uh, animal part of our brain is trying to get out of a stressful situation. And money is one of those triggers. So we, as financial professionals, ought to be doing things that that intentionally reduce stress. And so they're big, rigid conference room on the 56th floor, and you're in the big power suit, and you're going to play the expert. And I'm, you know that's the kind of environment that causes stress. But if this is a casual environment, and we're going to come in and you pick your spot on the couch, this is a lot more of a relaxing area for you to talk about money. So I love that you're seeing a trend there. And the mechanics kind of all over the board. You're right that in this era of coronavirus and COVID, everything's happening online. But some people that I know, some financial therapists do work locally, only with local clients. And they force the, you know, if you want to work with me, you have to come to my office kind of a thing. I'm the opposite. I work exclusively virtually, even with local clients. Um, So most people are going to be somewhere in between. But the The mechanics of it, the couch and the tissues, I mean, yeah, people will tend to cry. And that's okay, because if you're crying, especially if it's about something that's over 18 months ago, you probably haven't processed it yet. So let's start the process of actually getting through this this grief that you're feeling so that we can, you know, more, more easily identify what's in your way. So, Derek, I've been using um, language around the lessons learned about money um, growing up with clients for probably two decades. Um, let me let me run this by you, and you can tell me where I'm hitting the, the mark or maybe where I'm missing the mark. Um, mm-hmm. I, I routinely talk to folks about, and, and our, all of our advisors, we, we talk to folks about how um, how the two things that couples fight the most about are kids and money. And, um, and certainly, um, a lot of that is because each of us has our own experience growing up with our parents. So number one, it's, uh, you know, how were you raised as a child? And the other was, what did you see around money as a child? Did you have two parents who spent freely and were constantly in debt? Did you have parents who fought about money in your presence? Um, were there situations where one was a spender and one was a saver and, and you saw lots of conflict? Um, was money taboo in your home where no one talked about it and it was one of those uh, subjects that you weren't allowed to broach? And then I, I tell folks that not only do you bring all of that baggage with you, but when you get married, you marry someone who has all of that baggage too and they're completely different potentially. 
and that's where this perpetuates. Am, am I close? Is that uh, sort of the, the, the realm that you're, that you're trying to unpack? 100% correct. Yep, your intuitions are spot on. And it's worse because you've got your baggage, I've got my baggage, and money's taboo, so we're not allowed to talk about it. How many people do you know talk about money in the first date? First five dates, we don't do that. Often, people are married before they even figure out how much debt their you know, partner has. So we've got all these different baggage. We can't talk about it, and then it's a source of stress. All of a sudden, we you know, open up a credit card bill, and then we're somehow in a fight like that was an electric fence that we didn't know we were touching. When you talk about lessons from childhood, it might be helpful to learn there has been research around this, and they're called... So these lessons that you pick up turn into your beliefs about money. And these are subconscious. You don't really know that you have these unless you've done some research or some work around them. But they're called money scripts. So script, you know, like either an actor reads from a script. They don't have a choice. They have to read the script. Or if you're a tech savvy, you could think of a computer script. But it's just lines of code and it operates in the background. So you've got these beliefs underneath your conscious awareness Almost like those old tape recorders. You hit the play button, and all of a sudden you're doing that behavior. So a money script is any belief that you have about money. It could be money should be saved and not spent. It should be I deserve to spend money. It, sh- it could be the opposite. I don't deserve to spend money when there's other people who have less. It could be rich people got that way by taking advantage of people. Anything that you can think of is a subconscious rule that you have, and it's called a money script. And those come from two areas one is childhood, like you said. You, When we're young, we're trying to figure out how the world works, and we're piecing things together. So if you watch your parents when you're young, and every time you hear about money, there's a fight, you're going to create a little rule in your head that says money equals fights, or some version of that. And then the second way that we develop these money scripts is something called financial flashpoints, and that would be kind of like kind of like the money version of trauma. So these are highly intense emotional experiences, often embarrassing. Uh, An example might be, I got made fun of for wearing the wrong clothes in school. And so then I turned into somebody who only buys name brand clothes, right? But the reason was because I wanted to avoid getting made fun of again. So all those things kind of turn into your, your money scripts, your money beliefs. And all of our financial behaviors are driven by these invisible money scripts. This is one of the reasons why, as a financial advisor, I'm not threatened by robo-advisors. This concept that a computer program is going to somehow replace the human element of this. um, And and while a computer can do a fine job of maybe assessing uh, a portfolio, it it can't even do a decent job with assessing risk tolerance because it, it... it can't stress test you. It's under normal circumstances. Right. Um, you know, and, and the things that people talk about and the, the decisions get made, and, and not only the behavioral side, but to your point, the, um, the, the cognitive side here, it's, um, it's really heavy. The computer can't do that. There, there's, no, there's no mechanism where a, um, the human element can be completely removed from this process. It's just too heavy. It, it's, to me, it's a lot like medicine that way. Yes, um, a, a, a computer, a test might be able to diagnose something, but in terms of your, your treatment and the understanding of it and so forth, I really think the humanity of it matters. 
So you're in a you're in a remarkable field at a remarkable time. Um, is there is there a way? Is there a uh, a best practice to make money less taboo. You use the example of talking about money on a first date. And, and I would say that that's never, I don't think happened to me, but if it did, it would make me want to run. So clearly that, you know, that's not, that's not something you want to talk about. Um, not at that point, but we do tell people when they're contemplating getting married, um, that communication matters more than anything and being transparent and about all kinds of things, money being one of them. Um, we also talk about the, you know, we do a lot of multi-generational financial planning. And I don't know too many people at any wealth level who aren't at least somewhat embarrassed by their level of financial accomplishment. There's some very wealthy people out there who think that they're failures because they're not as wealthy as their neighbor, so to speak. And parents don't talk to their kids about it. And the kids want to help mom and dad. And mom and dad have the baggage around they're just trying to get their inheritance or gosh, I, I don't want to tell my kids that I'm in trouble. I don't want to have to live with them or rely on them for help. What are the best practices? How do you, how do you start that conversation in a safe way? And, and maybe it's, you need a therapist to help you, but if you don't have that, how do you start that in a safe way in a, in a, a family set, setting? Such a good question too. And I, th I think, you know, you, you brought up families or wealthy people will feel poor because they don't have as much. You also see the opposite. People who have a lot that feel guilty about it. And so they try to downplay their wealth because they have this paranoia that people are only going to be my friends because of this money. And oftentimes, or not often, but sometimes you'll see children who, would, who after their parents die, didn't even know that they were millionaires or, you know, whatever, because they were never talked about. So the, the, the single word answer is listen. So increasing our listening skills and intentionally creating an environment that is safe for us to talk about. So we use something or a very effective way of doing this is called reflective listening. So sit down, set a time. So don't ambush people when you want to talk about money. That's never good to just say, hey, we need to talk. You know, there's the four scariest words in the English language. <laughs> and if you add about money after that, it's, it's petrifying. So set a time, and then one person gets to talk, the other person listens. And then after three, four, five minutes, the, uh, the listener's job is just to repeat back in his or her own words, here's what I thought you meant. Is that right? You're not adding any new information you're not adding your analysis of it. You're just saying, do I understand your point of view correctly? And the speaker gets to say yes or no. If it's a no, then there's some clarifying until there's agreement on what that original viewpoint was. And then the original listener gets a chance to talk. And then the original speaker gets to be the listener. It does the same thing. Here's what I understand. So it's, I understand that I made that sound very simplistic. So I'm not trying to suggest you can do this tomorrow. This takes time and it takes practice, just like any other skill. But that's what we're going for. Creating a safe environment where it's okay to talk about money. There's going to be a lot of, of negative emotion because money touches every area of our life. And the minute you open your mouth about money, you open yourself up to be judged. Whichever way. You got too little. You got too much. You spend your money the wrong way. And everybody has different values. And so that's why we're afraid to talk about money, but slowly getting to this point where we have the confidence in our values, the confidence in 
what money needs to do for us isn't going to be what money what your money needs to do for you that's okay we can still live in the same space but let's let's talk about it let's get it in the open so that we're not you know adding to our baggage we don't want to you know bury bury things down so that they fester and come up later in an explosion in a fight three months from now Eric, I have like three hours worth of questions for you, and we have like ten <laughs> minutes. So uh, I'm I'm gonna we're gonna go to our rapid fire round. Actually, it's funny. This is this is where I get the free therapy. Let me let me be wildly transparent <laughs> with you, and and maybe you can help me. This is great. Um, I, I run a business and run a financial planning firm. My wife doesn't work outside the home. We have a ten year old daughter, um, and we don't fight about money. It's actually wonderful that we don't fight about money. First of all, she's not um, much of a spender. Um, and, and we just don't fight about it. And we do talk about it, though she has no real interest in it. So I sort of force her to go to the financial advisor just to be aware, and, and she'd rather get a root canal. But, um, you, you know, I am much more comfortable spending dramatically more on something than she is, and she often, I think, feels like, um, and shares with me, that she feels like none of the money is actually hers, and that she feels badly almost spending money that I've earned, um, and, and there's sort of this funny disconnect and I think there's something more going on because, you know, I certainly have done nothing to try and make her feel that way. And I, I've never said, oh my gosh, why did you spend this? Or how did you spend? Like, there's no criticism around it, but I, I think, and maybe this is true with a single spouse work, you know, a single working spouse household. Is, is there, what can I do, Derek? What do I do? I'm going to go home. You're going to help me. <laughs> how do I, how do I hopefully make her not feel like, um, um, not feel like everything is mine and she's sort of pilfering from me, which she's of course not doing. That was our agreement, right? Yep. Yep. And that's, uh, when I, when I talk to, uh, couples who don't have any children yet that are thinking about having children, this is the kind of thing that I make sure that they know about ahead of time when they decide to have one spouse stay home. And that is, it is possible for one spouse, this happened in the reverse, but the way I say it is, it's possible for the working spouse to feel like this is my money. It, you see this in sitcoms all the time. This, this kind of is reverse for you where she just feels that without having been prompted. So, so it sounds like she isn't much of a spender and that's one silo and then the second silo is should there, there might be this feeling that it's not her money so those two combined is going to make it even harder for her to feel comfortable spending so the it depends on how you know how deep do you want to go but you could <laughs> not very deep i don't have tissues to. nearby i'm not on the couch <laughs> <laughs> yeah so again this is that situation where i wouldn't ambush this i wouldn't say you know we're eating dinner and then say hey tell me about money when you were growing up but if you said you know i i really want to understand i get the feeling you know try to use i statements and not you statements we're not going to interpret other people so you're just observing without judging i see that you or it seems to me you struggle to be comfortable with spending money and i would really like to understand why would you be a willing to have a 30 minute or 60 minute conversation about what's what's uh, you know causing this stress for you something like that so you're inviting a conversation 
uh, asking permission. Uh, hopefully she says yes. If she says no, then, you know, don't, don't force it, but maybe ask again four, four weeks later or something like that. But then when it comes time to have the conversation, just be very curious. Just say, here's, here's kind of a standard set of questions that I ask almost everybody. So what was your first memory of money when you were growing up? So when you first knew money was a thing, what, what sticks in your mind? What was your most painful memory when you were growing up? And what was your most joyous memory of money when you were growing up? And if you ask those questions and do some reflective listening, ask follow-up questions, you'll get a pretty good sense of why she thinks the way she does about money. And I encourage her to ask you this as well, because now you guys are going to be on the same page. Now, in addition to those three questions, what did your mother teach you about money? What did your father teach you about money? What did you learn about rich people? And what did you learn about poor people when you were growing up? Because rich and poor are very subjective terms. And, you know, you might be surprised by, um, by those answers. But those are a good, that's a good starting point if you want to understand why somebody thinks, acts, and, and behaves a certain way around money. That's very helpful. I'll expect an invoice um, from you directly for the <laughs> advice. I have, I have three more questions for you, Derek. And, 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 mm-hmm. and um, uh, the, the next one is related to kids who grow up um, sort of that silver spoon kid, right? Um, I, I sometimes mm-hmm. use the Billy Madison reference, if you know the Adam Sandler film, um, yep. which I think, I think it's kind of a very funny way to look at this. But this idea that, that kids, grow up, kids growing up who are truly wealthy, and particularly if their parents flaunt in any way that that's the case, how in the world do you instill any values or, to that point, the value of a dollar, so to speak, with, with kids who really grow up with absolutely no perspective at all? Just like any question in the world of personal finance, it depends. So are we tackling this before they have children and they're deciding how to raise the kid? Are they already teenagers and they've already got their own money scripts developed, their own views about money? Um, but the, the whole idea is, I like to equate this to water. So if, you're, if you grew up in the desert, you were very grateful if you ever found some water. It didn't happen very often and there wasn't that much when you found it. But if you grew up in New York City, or any city in the United States, in the Western world, you just go to the tap and you turn it on and there's all the water that you could ever want. So that's the person that you're talking about. The silver spoon person just goes to the tap, turns it on, and there's money. You don't have to think about it. You don't know where it came from. You don't know why it's there. So if you can get ahead of that, you can start to teach and train values to your kids. Here's what money means. Here's the value of a dollar. There's lots of lots of ways you can do that. If they're already Billy Madison, now it's time to maybe see somebody like me, because you have to start to unpack the beliefs. So there's, we talked about money scripts earlier, a common money script for this silver spoon child would be, I deserve to spend money, or everything's free, or something like that, because they don't, they've never been in a place of deprivation. So it's it's about trying to help them see the other side of that perspective, help them understand where these views came from so that you can 
start to shift that worldview and then transform them into, maybe transform is not the right word, but help them with gratitude. You know, instead of taking things for granted, be grateful for what you have, um, but be more aware, be more mindful of your place in society. And this isn't normal for you to have this easy access to money. Um, but it's, it's about challenging beliefs and bringing to awareness what those beliefs are and, and what money's role is in their life. So uh, it, it, let's talk about retirement. Um, number one, because our audience really is, uh, I'm, I'm trying to help reprogram folks to think about retirement not as a retreat or surrender, but as a graduation and as an advancement. Um, I, I think as Americans, more than maybe anywhere um, in the world, we equate who we are with what we do uh, for a living. And so when people retire, at least in the traditional sense, uh, I, I feel like sometimes they lose their sense of purpose or they lose their sense of self. And there's, uh, you know, I, I think if you don't have a plan, not only forget the finances, financial independence is a wonderful thing. No one would disagree. But, but in terms of having a plan for, for your mission, for your why, beyond that, I think it can be very depressing to lose that, um, to lose that identity of being the lawyer or the doctor or the architect. Do you see folks coming to you at or uh, in advance of or perhaps after they've retired and they suddenly are watching daytime TV instead of being engaged with society? Is that, is that a, a trigger point for folks? It, yeah, it absolutely is. And I love what you're doing. And I love the, the name of this show, Don't Retire, you know, because you're retiring from something and instead graduate towards something. And there is, you know, the... the the, the knowledge and the research around the downsides of a traditional retirement are pretty new, pretty young. You know, people used to be, you'd work your job that you hated until you were 62, and then you had a couple of years off, and then your life expectancy was 65 or 67. So you needed to do it this way. But now we're living 30 years or more in retirement, and two of the things that you lose when you retire without a plan are your your mind's problem-solving ability. You're not solving interesting problems anymore, and you're losing your social connections, your social circle. And you probably know this better than I do, but women tend to be, on average, better socializers, have bigger friend networks than men. So men are more likely to rely on their women for or on their wives for socialization, uh, which can be irritating sometimes for the, the wife. So when you when you think about retiring, the, the first piece is try to have a plan for what you're going to do to keep yourself busy and socializing. Now, in terms of identity, right, if, if you haven't thought about this ahead of time, right, if you can, if you can go back and catch this early enough, we can start to develop a plan and, and start to think through, here's what's going to happen. And then now all of a sudden it's in my mind that I'm not going to be Dr. Smith anymore or forever. I'm not going to be, you know, Derek Hagan, the lawyer forever. But when you haven't thought about that and you're in your in the weeds day to day and all of a sudden, hey, I'm going to retire next month or next year. Yeah, absolutely right. There's going to be a loss of identity associated with that. And that that takes some time and maybe the answer is you know so say we didn't catch it in time 
Now I feel like I've lost my identity. Well, how can we reframe that identity to get you somewhere more healthy? Maybe you can you know, do some charitable work or philanthropy work or start your own little consulting company or something. Uh, and maybe that could even be with the same identity. So maybe you're still Dr. Smith, but you're not the ER physician anymore. Maybe you do some education or some training or something like that. So trying to to kind of grab the pieces of that identity that you that you like and, and keep and find a way to spend your time in retirement doing that because I would imagine if you're retiring there's some reason you're retiring if you still liked doing it if you still wanted to be Dr. Smith you wouldn't have retired right so let's whatever you want to retire from let's let's try to get rid of those aspects of that job and whatever you want to graduate to let's try to do more of those things and we can kind of reframe your identity around that new aspect of that new era in your life. Derek, we are not only out of time, we've run over. And uh, to our audience who's used to a 30-minute show, forgive me, but this was just too fascinating to cut off early. Um, we need an extra credit assignment from you. We need the one takeaway, the one thing that folks can do um, to, to have better money health or, or, um, or be therapeutically better off financially. What, what would that one extra credit assignment be today? Yeah, I'm going to cheat a little bit because I, I kind of brought this up with you, but ask yourself what money's role was in your childhood. So ask yourself what your first uh, memory of money was, your last and your most uh, painful, your most joyous memories of money. Ask yourself what your parents taught you about money and write this down. I encourage you to actually journal this out because we think by writing, we think by talking. So write it down and you're going to start to get a better understanding of what money's role in your life is. And then going forward, you now have a better understanding of what's the money for. And now you can use your money to align your life that you choose by design. That's an excellent assignment and uh, one I'm going to take to heart personally. So Derek, thank you. How can folks get in touch with you or learn more about you? I created a page, moneyhealthsolutions.com slash graduate. Uh, and there you're going to find everything from how to sign up for my newsletter. You can learn more about me. You can learn more about my social links. Uh, everything will be in that page for you. Fantastic. Moneyhealthsolutions.com slash graduate. Um, I encourage everybody to check that out. Derek, thanks for being on the show. This has been remarkable and uh, very, very helpful. And I, I, I thank you for being here and I hope you'll stay in touch. Absolutely. Thank you so much. For all of our listeners, please subscribe to our podcast, post comments and reviews. Consider sending us a question, which we might answer in a future episode of Office Hours. For more, go to DontRetireGraduate.com. To learn more about BFG Financial Advisors, visit us on social media. We're at BFGFA.com. We'll be back next week with another installment of Office Hours and in two weeks with another engaging guest. For now, this is your host, Eric Brotman, reminding you, don't retire, graduate. From this day forward, let us begin visualizing our dreams and building our futures. Today, I implore you, don't retire, graduate. Visit our website at don'tretiregraduate.com to subscribe. And please like us and post comments on social media.
Securities offered through Kestra Investment Services, LLC. Kestra IS, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Kestra Advisory Services, LLC. Kestra AS, an affiliate of Kestra IS. Kestra IS or Kestra AS are not affiliated with Brotman Financial or any other entity discussed. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast, Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.